0: Okay, Yuval Harari, I don't know if that's a familiar name to you, but he is, here he is, he's pictured, he's an important thinker, a public intellectual, author of a couple of best-selling books, including Sapiens and Homo Deus, and he gave a, a TED Talk a few years ago on, on the, the topic of Homo sapiens, and it, it kind of went viral, but he, here's the gist of his argument, and I want you to consider this. Human rights are just like heaven and just like God. They aren't real. They're just a fictional story that we've invented and spread around. Now, it it may be a very nice story. It may be a a very attractive story we want to believe, but it's just that, only a story. Like It's not a biological reality, And, and Harari is as you might guess, he's a naturalist, he's a, he's an atheist, and really biological realities are are the, the only reality. He goes on, like, just as a jellyfish and a woodpecker and an ostrich have no rights, do they? No rights. Homo sapiens have no rights. If you take a human and cut them open, you look inside, you find their blood, you find their heart, you find lungs and kidneys, but you don't find any rights there, do you? The only place you find rights is in the the stories that humans have invented and spread around, and then he, he expands it. You know, the same is true of of the political fields. States and nations are also like human rights and like God and like heaven. J- just stories. A, a mountain, you know, Camelback Mountain, that is a reality. You can see it. You can touch it. You can you can even smell it. But uh, nations, Israel, the United States, they're just. Very powerful stories. Stories we might want to believe very much, but they're, they're only just that. You can't really see the United States. You can't touch it. You cannot, you cannot smell it. Okay, what makes Harari, I think, so unique among intellectuals out there is he has no problem conceding that all of the most important things, you know, rights, values, meaning, morals, purpose, all of the most important stuff, Is just a fairy tale. You know, and in that respect, he is unlike a lot of other people out there who, uh, who, you know, people are like, well, I don't know if there is a God, or I kind of really think there probably isn't a God. They're agnostic or they're atheist, but they still want to retain all those other stuff, you know, values and rights and meaning and purpose, and say those are real even if God isn't real. I was going to save this for later in the sermon, but I'll use it right here. You remember, and I, I've u- told you this one before. There's the Russian philosopher, uh, Soly- Solyov, I can't even remember his last name. It starts with an S. But he, he very humorously said at one point, he said, man descended from apes, therefore we must love each other. And his point was, like, how nonsensical is that? Man decided, descended from eights and, uh, and we should just all love every, everyone. Um, Harari is the kind of thinker, the kind of person who recognizes that's bogus. And so in his book, I think it's in, in Sapiens, he points out, that one of the misnomers we have about evolution, I'm not really commenting on the validity or lack of validity on the theory of evolution, but one of the, one of the, the fallacies that we have regarding evolution is we think that there is this unbroken succession uh, along the evolutionary train to us as Homo sapiens and it starts out with Homo ergastus, if I'm pronouncing that right, to Homo erectus, to Neanderthals, to Homo sapiens themselves but but actually the the, the best evolutionary theorists today uh, will tell you that from about two million years ago to about ten thousand years ago, there were several different human species living in the world together until what happened well one, theor- one uh, side says, well, maybe there is interbreeding like the Andthals interbred with you know the uh, homo sapiens and, and and but no if you actually look at the dna evidence that it doesn't support that theory what happened is simply that homo sapiens prevailed and they wiped out all of the other human species they exterminated all of the competing species on the on the planet and if you think about it for it's like nobody wants to think about it to really go there but if that is If that actually is our origin story, then um, evolution has made homo sapiens, like other mammals, a very xenophobic creature. (laughs) You know, homo sapiens instinctively divide humanity into two parts, we and they. We are people like you and me who share our language, share our religion and customs. We are responsible for each other, but we are not responsible for them. We are we are always distinct from them. We owe them nothing. We don't want to see any of them in our territory. And we don't care in iota what happens in their tor- territory because they're actually barely human. So he goes on to, to point out that if this is the story, and he, this is a story he believes. Tolerance, tolerance is not a, a homo sapien trademark. You know, in modern times, a small difference in skin color, dialect, or religion has been enough to prompt one group of Homo sapiens to set about exterminating another group. And he asks, would ancient Homo sapiens have been more tolerant towards an entirely different human species? It may well be that when Homo sapiens encountered Neanderthals, the result was the first and most significant ethnic cleansing campaign in world history. Now, I don't know if you've thought about that before. But I, I kind of think that, that he's right. If all there is, he's, only, he's right in the sense that if all there is is biology, and our past is nothing but a long hellscape of one tribe you know, cleansing the rest, you know, then what reason is there to believe in, in human rights? What, is, what reason is there to believe that there is actually a future for civilization? Well, we'll keep that from happening in the future too. Now, thankfully, Genesis tells us a, a different story, and it, it, I don't know. I, I feel like this is maybe the most, maybe the most important concept in all of Genesis: the Imago Day. You know, the image of God. And we we believe, don't we, that, that this isn't a mere fiction. This isn't a fairy tale. That this, the Imago Day, is real. It's the most important concept in, 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 the, in the book of Genesis. And I would suggest that the only way that we could possibly build a future civilization that can sus- be sustained and thrive for people everywhere, all over the globe, is for us you know, to acknowledge the Imago Dei in, in every, every living human being. And we're still a long way away from that, aren't we? Well, let's pray again, and then we'll read the passage. <clears throat> Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us together as a family this day. Thank you for being a God who speaks to us. And we ask that you would take these words that we're about to read and and take the sermon that follows and and teach us to cherish the image of God found in every person we meet. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. And God's people said, Amen. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky. In every creature that crawls on the earth, what is the imago dei? What's the image of God? That is a question that theologians have speculated about for for many many years. You know, what exactly constitutes the imago dei? Earlier in church history, they, they answered that question almost exclusively in terms of what separates us from the animal kingdom. Like, how are we different than the animals? And they said, well, you know, we are different because uh, we have a unique Self-consciousness. We're different because we, we have emotions. Uh, we're different because we have a moral conscience, conscience. And so those things differentiate us from the animals, especially our ability to reason. There's always an emphasis on reason. That's what separates us from the animals. It makes us his divine image bearers. That, I think that's probably a, a decent part of it. But there's, there's actually a, if you're thinking about the context of Genesis, there's got to be a simpler answer to it. And the, the answer is, like, what was the role of images in the ancient world? I mean, the ancient world, go to any archaeological day. You know, there's statues and figurines and pictures all throughout the ancient world, primarily used to represent kings, aren't they? <laughs> you know, you would make an image of the king. The king would rule this vast territory and a vast people— and most of the people living in the kingdom would never have actually seen the king with their own eyes. So you make an image of the king and remind them that you know this is the king's land. We are the king's people. Uh, this this is his domain. And so if you're thinking about Genesis, that makes to me the most sense. Of so we're talking about an image of God. What what God has done is he has made us you know his kingly representatives <laughs> that we're supposed to. You know, rule the world, cultivate the world, you know, form and fill the world on his behalf. And that's kind of what you get in verse 28, isn't it? Where God says, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every creature that crawls on, on the earth. We're to do that as God's living icons. We're not just, you know, statues and cement, uh, concrete, but we, we are living icons representing the creator to the, to the world. Now, maybe you're like me, and I feel a little bit uncomfortable with the language of, of ruling the earth or subduing the earth. It, 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 it almost sounds kind of like, I know, Ming the Merciless and Flash Gordon, Gordon you know, the wah-ha-ha-ha, ha, ha, we're going to rule the, the the world. Is that exactly what's being said? No. Um, the, the emphasis in Genesis, and we'll see this later in chapter 2, is that we are created for the sake of of the earth. We are created to complete the creative work that God had already begun in chapter 1. Recall that uh, um, from last week, we went through the creation days, and you go to the very top, the beginning of the creation days. The problem the creation days are trying to address is verse 2, which says that the earth was without form, and it was empty. And so what what this mandate, what we get later on in Genesis 1, is mankind's job is to form the earth, to cultivate the earth, and to uh, uh, fill it, create things to fill the empty, emptiness. We are basically, as his image bearers, to do what he's already done for the previous creation days. You know, for example, the command, I think it was the command in verse 26, maybe, to, uh, to be fruitful and multiply. Well, in our fruitfulness, we, we, we multiply and we fill the emptiness, it's very important, isn't it, that uh, that our being fruitful, we, we receive our lives from people who have come before us, and we pass our lives on to others, and in this way, we fill, just like God uh, originally filled. So no, like we're not tiny despots. We're, it is always ruling and subduing for the sake of the earth, to represent the creator the way that the creator would want to be represented. And it, the way that the Creator would want the earth to be uh, to be cared for, and so we're always servants in the Master's house. Okay, uh, the image of God—it makes sense to me that it represents the rule of a king. But here's something that might that might almost be shocking to the original readers, and that is Genesis one tells us what no one ever uh, ever had dared say before—that each human being images God. I mean, in the ancient world, the only people who could represent the gods primarily were were the ruling class. You know, the kings and the priests and the royal family, they were made in the image of God. Common people certainly weren't considered to be in the image of the gods. The the little people exist to serve the big people, right? But here it is. God is saying on the the very first page of his Bible um, that you have been made for me, By me, through me, to represent me. All of you have been made that way. There's no such. There is no such thing as a caste system. There's no such thing even as a a small person. All of you are divine regal image, the divine regal image of my being, and that is the rock solid, objective, irreducible significance and value that every human being on the face of the earth um, possesses, men and women equally. And that, of course, too, is what fuels the modern concept of human rights. Tom Holland um, makes this point in his groundbreaking book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution uh, Remade the World. It's an incredible book, and I would encourage you to to read it if you haven't. But he, he points out that the concept of human rights emerged from a very specific time and place, namely, 12th century Italy, from a very specific people, it was, it was they came. You know who came up with it? It was canon lawyers in the church, under the influence of a very specific doctrine, namely the image of God, imago Dei, and based on a very specific story. You know the creation, the Christian you know, Judeo Christian narrative of creation. Why is that? Why is that important? Well, if you were to ask a high school student today, go to Coronado, go to Saguaro. Ask a student, do you believe that every human being should be treated the same, regardless of race, regardless of national origin, regardless of class? They're going to say, yes, absolutely. Do you believe that every human being has rights that cannot be trampled upon, even even by the big people, even by the government? Everyone has, you know, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as we say in the Declaration of it. Do you believe this? And they're like, yes, Where did this idea come from? And they'll look back at you and they won't have a clue. It, it comes from here. It it comes right from here. You know, one of the most, most beautiful articulations of it is found, was found on July the 4th, 1965, in MLK's American Dream Speech. You remember this one? MLK, he, he said, you know, the whole concept of the Imago Dei, as it is expressed in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget that this, that is a nation. That there are no gradations in the image of God. That every man from a a treble white to a, a bass black is significant on God's keyboard Precisely because every man is made in the image of God. And one day we will learn that. Yes, we will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of, of every man. Uh, you know, amen? Focus on that one line, though. Go back to, there are, n- there are no gradations in the image of God. Th- that's the problem that we have run into is... We, we have not acknowledged that. You know, here in America, we justified slavery. We justified Jim Crow on the basis that African Americans were not fully as human as white Americans. We abducted people and put them in chains and justified it because we said, we said that they were less sophisticated, they were less developed, they were, they were less human. Uh, We did the same thing to Native Americans. In 19th, in the 19th century, Oliver Wendell Holmes argued that we were entirely justified in the extermination of Native Americans because they aren't fully in the image of God. Who else did that? Nazi Germany maintained the massacre of Jews and the disabled was justified because they were depleting the gene pool of the master race. Stalin and Mao, the communists, the same thing. The common denominator in all of these atrocities is when one group uh, stands up and says that they lack capacities, they lack stages of development, they lack intelligence, they lack uh, preferred skin color, ethnicity, cultural heritage, they lack size. The common denominator is when a group of people act, um, when they act on Harari's evolutionary instincts to say that we are superior to them, that um, they are not fully like us. And, and that's, of course, that's how the 19th and 20th century justified killing so many, imprisoning, killing, enslaving so many people. So you go back to MLK's line, there are no gradations in the image of God. When will we, when will we finally believe that? You know, for the last decade or so, you know, in Iceland, Iceland has been systematically aborting all children with Down syndrome. They, they tout that it's, it's come to Iceland, and you'll see. We don't, have any, we don't have anybody that suffers from Down syndrome anymore in Iceland. Why? Because they're dead. Because, because what, what, you, what, are you, what are you saying when you say uh, th- that this group uh, it, it does not deserve to live? What you're saying is that there are gradations in the image of God. That, that they're not fully human in some way. That they are expendable. That, that is not a life that is worth living. You'll notice, too, often in our country, those who are who, not all, but the, many who are pro-abortion will talk about the human embryo as though they're just a, a mass of cells in the body. They're just a, a clump of, of humanity as if they're somehow subhuman. And when politicians talk about it, you'll notice they don't. <laughs> they, they won't talk about at all the, the humanity of, of the embryos. They just avoid it altogether. When, you know, the, the, the word embryo comes from the Greek word embryon. And, you know, the Greek to Latin transition is embryon is to, uh, is to f- uh, fetus. And you know what fetus is? In Latin, fetus is a, is a Latin word. You know what it is in Latin? It's simply Um, infant. And that's what they are. They are tiny human infants at the earliest stages of development and made in the image of God. And so it's so important for us to see that on the very first pages of the book of Genesis, God is telling us that every life is precious. Every life, unborn life, is precious. Children with special needs are precious. Aging parents, even when they don't remember you because they're suffering dementia, are precious. They're not to be euthanized. People who are nonverbal, they are precious image bearers. People who are non-mobile. People who are are confined to a wheelchair, confined to, to a bed. People who are completely dependent upon you or upon a doctor. Those are my regal, divine image bearers. They all bear they 're all my living icons they all they all represent me and a truly just society is going to be a society that that finally 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 recognizes this you know and commits resources to, to help support caregivers and be it a single mother who 's facing a really difficult uh, pregnancy alone or, or or families with special needs children who you know have the <laughs> Their hands so full or, or end of life caregiving, which we all know is so difficult. Um, a truly just society is going to allocate its resources there because it says this is important. Everyone is precious. We're, we're not that type of society yet, are we? All right. Here are then uh, a couple of takeaways that I'd like to send you, you home with. And I mean, this is a topic that you could talk for, hours and hours on. I'm trying to boil it down to a, a few you know, takeaway, simple ideas. Number one is God doesn't make junk. Carl Rogers is the father of client-centered therapy. You may have heard, um, if you've ever taken any counseling classes, of Rogerian uh, therapy. Uh, Rogers, it, Rogerian therapy is when you do a whole lot of asking questions of the client and, and, and try to pull stuff out of them? Well, um, he spent decades of research meeting with tens of thousands of clients, and he concluded his life's work by observing that, quote, the central core of difficulty in people as I have come to know them, the central, the central, central difficulty is that in the great majority of cases, they despise themselves, and they regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. Anybody guilty <laughs> of, of that before, right? The Imago Dei says that God doesn't make junk. And that it doesn't matter, you know, what you've done with your life. It doesn't matter how you failed your life. It doesn't matter if you never lived up to your parents' expectations. It never. It doesn't matter if you never lived up to your, your, your own expectations. It, it is wrong to say that, um, that I am worthless, you know, because we're not. Because every person who comes across your path needs to be treated with a sacredness, a reverence, a respect... A concern for their individuality, a kindness, and that includes even the person who's looking back at you in the mirror i mean I, clearly you know suicide is is the ultimate denial of this isn't it it's like you look at the person in the mirror and you say that person isn't worth living anymore i 'll murder them and on a smaller level you know we 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 do these like suicidal <laughs> kind of attempts on ourselves where we just hammer ourselves with the self-flagellating harm of you're such a failure, you're such a waste, you're so worthless, you are so unlovable. We we tell, I mean, am I the only one that's told myself that before, right? No, that's absolutely not true. You are his icon, and that is the rock-solid, objective, um, irreducible glory that is true about you that you are a pricelessly valuable and worth uh, worthwhile human being made in his image. And that's true of all the other people sitting in the room with you. Uh, I I would say, secondly, on this point, that God doesn't make junk, just that people must sense us relating to them on the basis of their God-given dignity and not primarily on the basis of their shortcomings. Why? Like, if we're not careful, we can easily fall into the trap of diminishing the worth of a human being by thinking first of, of all the ways that they need to be fixed of all the ways that i can I can make them better of all the ways that I can change them instead of just first valuing them for who they are and even valuing them for for their their weaknesses and their inadequacies, because that that is that is them is it not number two <clears throat> I mean as we 're trying to make our faith something. Uh, interesting, intelligible, pers- persuasive, alluring to the rest of the world, we, we have to think of ways to, to talk to them. And, and here's one. You can say to your neighbor who is not a Christian, do you believe in human rights? Do you believe in the equal dignity of every every person? Do you believe in the value of the poor and the weak? Do you believe in caring and advocating for all? Then you <laughs> you are you're pulling all of that currency from Christian capital. You know, that all comes from, from the Imago Day, and that's good. It's, I just want you to understand that's where it comes from. And I think we can say to people, what we need to say to people often, is that Christianity, it, it uniquely accounts for the values that you already hold. <laughs> values that would be absurd to hold if Christianity wasn't true and the other story was really true. You know, when when people, as I said, they dabble around, and I'm not sure there's a God, um, doubt is okay, but what's not okay is to just stop there, and to not consider the implications, because if there is no God, then it sure seems like Harari is correct. Like, why would we believe in human rights and equal dignity if those are just made-up stories, if those are just fictions, Now somebody might reply, well Brad, but they're, they're very useful stories. They're, they're very, you know, helpful stories. They've worked. Well fine, but no society will ultimately survive if, if that's the bargain that they make. You know, eventually a sufficient number of people are gonna be like, look, that's just make-believe. You know, all that matters is the biological survival of me and my tribe Over your tribe. All that matters is the propagation of my DNA and our DNA over your DNA. All that matters is that we spend as much time on this short life that we have in enjoying it, you know. And like, if all that is, if all there is is that kind of biological existence, if all there is is Homo sapiens eliminating all of their competition, that is not ever going to sustain a society where every man. From treble white to bass black is significant on the keyboard, alright? And we need, we need people to wake up to that, to that fact. You know, the, the only kind of society that will eventually lead to is one where the strong man, you know, the strong men, the, the, you know, one tribe just dominates and exterminates all the, the rest. A hellscape of a world. And so it's important for us to say to our neighbors that so many of the values you hold right now, it's good that you hold them. It's right that you hold them. They all flow from the Imago Dei, which flows out of Christianity. Um, Christianity makes sense of your own moral intuitions better than your, you know, counter story uh, makes sense of them. Did that make sense? (laughs) Thirdly and finally, yeah, you are Immortal. We'll see this next week in verse 7 of chapter 2 where it says that God breathed his life into Adam and created mankind with a soul. That, that word soul is notoriously difficult to define. Like, what is a soul? You know, what is that? It, the non-physical, immaterial part of a human being which is like somehow the center of you, the, the soul somehow ties your mind and your will and your emotions together together. The the soul is somehow truly the the, the most true part of you, we could might might say. It's some part of you that God didn't give to animals or fish or instincts. And it's the only part of you that you possess right now that will last forever and ever. Have you thought about that? Your soul is the only part of you that, that, you know, you have right this, this second that a, a billion years from now into time immemorial you will you will have them and every person has a soul that's you know we don't take that we take it for granted right cs lewis put it so well in his famous sermon the weight of glory he said you know he's thinking about the soul being you know, transformed in, in into a new glory with the recreation of the heavens of the earth. He goes, it may be, po- it may be possible to think too much of your own potential glory hereafter, but it is impossible to think too often or too deeply about that of your neighbors. The weight of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. So heavy a weight it is that only humility can carry it. It's a serious thing to live in a society of immortals. To to remember that millions of years from now, uh, the dullest and most uninteresting person you meet may one day be an incredible creature who, if you saw him now, (laughs) you would be strongly tempted to worship. And he has this great line, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. You know, that's probably a, a truth that just doesn't sink in as deeply as we need it to, that every person you meet is immortal, that the soul that inhabits them, which they're carrying around inside of them, is going to last forever. And, and because of that, since we, we will last forever, we have to protect our souls, and we have to protect the souls of other people. All of our actions you know, should be directed towards helping and not harming their souls. All of our actions should be seen, you know, in the light of what may be their future glory. I'll conclude here. You remember the story in the Gospels. One day a man comes up to Jesus and uh, he asks, is it all right to pay taxes to Caesar? You want to pull up the denarius? Yeah. And should I pay taxes to Caesar? And he was trying to trip Jesus up in a political quagmire. <laughs> so Jesus replied, well, give me a coin. And the coin that he pulls out is a Roman denarius. He hands him that. And Jesus looks at the coin and says, Who Im- whose, image, whose image do you see on this coin? And the man says, well, Caesar's. And then Jesus replies, well, give to Caesar's, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. If it weren't for the disingenuousness of the questioner, he might have asked the, the obvious follow-up question, what am I to give to God? What what belongs to God? And Jesus could have easily replied to him, well, whose image is on you? <laughs> because, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's and you are his. Yeah. Jesus not only shows us who God is, he shows us who we are to be as humans. You know, if I had more time, I could go into all the ways that Jesus fully exemplifies the image of God, but I I don't suffice to say that Jesus Christ was the only human being who fully appreciated the human dignity of everyone that he met, who cared perfectly for all the souls that he met. And where did that lead him? It led him to a cross where where he died for image bearers where he paid the penalty of the crimes and injustices that we have all perpetrated on our fellow image bearers. So friends, you belong to him. <laughs> and, and you were meant to be with him. And, and I ask you to give yourself to him. Because on the cross, he gave himself to you. He gave himself freely. Give to God what is God's.